Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. Here with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, what's going on? Hey, Yoel. How's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, do, do you have a story to tell our listeners? So I was just on spring break, um, and one of the activities that I did over spring break um, was I flew a kite for maybe the first time ever in my life, but certainly like the first time in the last 20 years or so. Um, and I found it to be a very magical experience and also surprisingly challenging. <laughs> Have you flown a kite? Uh, I've flown a kite as a kid, not as an adult. What did you find to be challenging about it? Like getting it up high. <laughs> oh yeah, the kite, it, it wants to like fly into the ground. Yeah, like dump, yeah, just like dive bombs into the ground. And then like some of my um, intuitions about how to get the kite to go higher, I don't think were correct. Like my, my intuition was like that if I ran, that there would be like air that would lift the kite higher. Um, but I don't think it's about running, actually. I think it's about like <laughs> giving the kite more slack when it's higher and then like eventually it just sort of like does its own thing. But I had like really powerful illusions of control where I was like, if I run really fast, then the kite will go really high. Yeah. Yeah. You just need, you need to run really fast and you need a long area to run in. So ideally like football field. <laughs> uh, what uh, prompted this? Um, a friend of ours had bought kites, I think for maybe a specific event, but, um, but we hadn't used them. And so uh, we were like, oh, what should we, what should we do on this lovely spring break day? And she was like, oh, this is the day to fly a kite. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're getting in touch with your inner child. Um, what are we drinking? Oh, I, um, I still have some more beers from Atlanta. So today I have a... Wow. Did you come back with just a car full of beer? <laughs> I came back with exactly four beers and I've been like <laughs> very responsibly trying to save them for the podcast. Wow. Well, our listeners appreciate that. What, what have you got today? So this is from Wild Leap Craft Beer and it's called Truck Chaser. And it is a creamsicle double IPA. Um, so it's got like a picture of a creamsicle truck on it. And it's from LaGrange, Georgia. Nice. Uh, I have something from a local brewery today. This is from Bellwoods, which is one of our uh, bigger uh, independent breweries here in Toronto. It's a Jutsu Pale Ale. I don't know where this came from, but I found it in my fridge. Um, and I know I like these, so I'm excited to drink it. Oh, lucky you. Yeah, lucky me. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Okay, I like mine, but I knew I was going to. How, how's yours? It's really good. But you know how I like things that are beer, ice cream combinations, or at least trying to be that. You're really, you're hitting the theme hard. So it succeeds at being a beer, ice cream. Yep, it's good. Yeah. I also really like creamsicles. I feel like the next time we hang out, we actually have to make your beer float idea. Okay. Deal. Like a Guinness with some ice cream in it. I feel like that would be really good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's the yeah, next I, big thing. I, I, Maybe I can turn it into a... <laughs> like, you can, how do you put that in a can somehow? So um, we have a couple of things we want to talk about today. Uh, the first... Uh, Alexa, I just I, I saw this on Twitter and I was like, this is the most un-Alexa topic ever, and we have to talk <laughs> about it. Um, so I'm um I'm quoting from a story about Harvard professor psychologist Steven Pinker, uh, who is selling NFTs. So the story reads, uh 
On March 14th at 7 p.m., thought leader and Harvard professor Stephen Pinker will release digital collectibles of his famous idea that, quote, free speech is fundamental. A side note, this is the first time that I've heard that this is associated with him, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, these collectibles will guarantee recurrent access to intimate group video calls with Pinker to discuss this topic. I guess the video calls only are about free speech, uh, is what the story implies, uh, for the next several years. Two tiers will be av available. The gold collectible is unique, so only one. Grants the buyer the right to host co-host co the calls with Pinker, priced at $50,000. The standard collectibles, which are limited to 30 items, uh, grant the buyers to, uh, uh, the right to access the video calls and ask questions. Those will be priced at 0.2 Ethereum, which it says is about $300 U.S. Uh, purchase available, I guess, uh, six days ago uh, on the Polemics NFT platform. Holders of the NFTs can expect to book their first call with Picker as soon as two weeks following their purchase. Uh, Alexa, what's your take? Okay, so this was my emotional roller coaster once I got this email from you about potentially talking about this topic. So first I went to the article and I started reading it and I was like, this must be an onion article because the like irony is so great. Um, but then I kept reading and I was like, okay, this seems to be sincere. And then I felt outraged. And then ultimately I arrived at sort of like being annoyed slash slightly delighted by the like, yeah, the, the beautiful irony of this idea. So, okay, let's just, be sure that I understand exactly what's going on. I admit that I Googled NFTs. The first thing I learned is that they're not a good investment <laughs> according to what <laughs> the first result that comes up for me is like, this is, you could very likely lose all of your money if you invest in an NFT. Anyways. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Sh should we, wait, should we say what an NFT is kind of briefly? Yeah. Okay. So do you want to do that? I think it stands for non non-fungible something. Non-fungible token. That's there right. We go. Um, so it is uh, like uh, a unit of cryptocurrency, like for example a Bitcoin or uh, or similar, in that it lives on the blockchain. Uh, so it's a digital uh, claim to a thing. Uh, but unlike a Bitcoin, which is fungible, and that one Bitcoin is like any other Bitcoin. A non-fungible token is, well, non-fungible. So you're basically buying a unique digital thing. Um, and the kind of real-world consequences of owning the unique digital thing, um, it's not really intrinsic to the thing that you're getting. There's nothing in the code that says, you know, Stephen Pinker is obliged to hang out with you. But Stephen Pinker can say, hey, if you have this unique digital thing, I will hang out with you, which seems to be what's happening here. Uh -huh. So uh, other things that NFTs could be is like you quote unquote own uh, some piece of art, for example. Uh, so the NFT could have in it uh, a link uh, to a JPEG on a server somewhere and software could read that NFT. Uh, you could prove that you own it. And then that uh picture on a server somewhere could show up, let's say, as your avatar on a website or whatever. So if you want your avatar to be a little monkey, you buy the little monkey NFT, plug it into the website, little monkey shows up. So that's the basic idea. It's like a digital token that says, I own such and such. Okay. So that's what an NFT is. And then in this specific case, what seems to be happening is that people can pay money for the right 
to speak with Steven Pinker about his novel idea that free speech is fundamental. So basically commodifying the ability to talk about the idea of free speech. So my first thought looking at this was like, surely we can underbid him. <laughs> like, <laughs> like let, let's say we would take, I don't know, what, uh, 20 bucks? <laughs> so basically, offer is open, right? You can either pay Pinker 50000 slash 300 or you could pay us 20 and we will we'll happily talk to you about free speech, right? Oh, well, I was going to say, what's gonna, what will our famous idea be? Um, do we have to prove that it's our idea? I mean, apparently not. No, no, we we can we can just we can just say that we also think free speech is fundamental. Give us money. I wonder. I wonder who would win in that bidding war. <laughs> well, we're willing to go a lot lower than he is. His <laughs> time is worth a lot more than ours. So I feel like we have the upper hand in a way. Ugh, yeah. Um, I am curious whether people are buying these things. I mean, I find this idea very obnoxious, as you probably um, anticipated when you sent it. Um, yes, I, I sent it half to troll you. Yeah, I figured. Um, I am curious, like who would who would be like attracted by this? Do you have any idea? I guess people who want to hang out with Steven Pinker. I guess. I mean, he's famous and he has fi- fans, right? Uh huh. So yeah. I assume that. Well, oh, hold on. Okay, we'll do a little magic of editing because I didn't actually look up uh, whether uh, these sold for anything. Um, okay. I'm 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 gonna Google it right now. Wow! So somebody bought the fifty thousand dollar one already. Wow! Damn! See, so like we're leaving money on the table. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so okay, yeah, we're kind of making fun of this. Um, if you're like a famous quote unquote thought leader and people want to hang out with you, is it a crazy idea to charge them to do that? Yes. I think, well, I mean, there's a variety of ways that you could answer that question. I think like if your priority as a thought leader who likely already has a lot of money is to make more money, um, arguably this would be one way to accomplish that goal. Um, But I think that, uh, so, I mean, there's like a particular irony in his like topic, I think, which, um, which seems to like emphasize the importance of like having a diversity of views about things and accessibility and non-elitism. Um, and then he's like uh, providing an opportunity to to talk about this in a way that is like very inaccessible and elitist. Um, but I think just in, in general, I don't know. I mean, I don't like the like sort of cult of personality aspect of this. I don't like the like rich get richer aspect of this. Um, so, I mean, maybe, maybe not, crazy in terms of like being not aligned with your goals of making more money. But uh, I think it's a terrible idea. Yeah. One thing that I find kind of baffling is like, does Stephen Picker really need the money? I mean, maybe. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he does. Surely not. I mean, obviously, I don't know what his financial situation is, but you can make some inferences from the fact that he's sold many best-selling books and presumably has very high speaker fees and works at Harvard. He he owned a lot of stock in Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know. Um, mm. But okay, so you said speaker fees. This is the same? This is different? I mean, lots of famous academics get paid a lot of money to give talks, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's also um, an, an interesting conversation and maybe one where there's like a, a little more room for nuance. Um, I'm also sort of opposed to the idea that just because people are more famous, they should be able to charge higher speaker fees. And um, yeah, there's a big part of me that thinks that speaker fees should be uh, much more equal, especially like, you know, people should get paid similar amounts for doing a similar thing. I know many people would disagree with that. Um, but yeah, to me, at least at first glance, like there, there's something that seems a little like sleazier about this, like just the idea that, oh, it's a privilege to be able to engage me in conversation just is like, just feels so obnoxious to me. Um, and it does feel a little bit different than like, okay, I, pre- I prepared this talk um, I did some research to do it and now I'm delivering it and I expect some kind of compensation for that. Um, yeah, to just, just be like, oh, because it's Steven Pinker, he deserves to be paid to engage you in conversation. Like, I don't like that idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I share your feelings even about the speaker fees. Like I realize that in, in some ways this reaction doesn't make any sense. Um, because people are willing to pay this money to hear people talk uh, and kind of what's wrong with that, but it does feel sort of icky to me. And it sort of feels doubly icky when it's pay to hang out with me. But, you know, at the same time, it's like this guy is happier, I assume, having paid $50,000 to hang out with Steven Pinker and Steven Pinker is happier having the $50,000. And so it seems kind of like win-win. And, you know. Right, so who am I to tell this guy that he... Or or woman or right. It was yeah, it was a to, dude. I think said, uh, <laughs> according to what I read. Okay. Uh, um, draw no inferences from that. Right. Who are you to tell them this is a bad way to spend your fifty your fifty thousand dollars? Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars. Oh my god. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm more like it. Just seems so ridiculous for an individual to spend that amount of money on that, and it says something about that, like absolutely ridiculous amounts of money that some people have that they're willing that they're that seems like a good deal for them and you know these like speaking gigs are usually like corporate things so you're like okay a company has a lot of money fine they'll pay somebody 10k for a talk that still seems crazy to me but fine but this is like an individual who's like oh yeah 50k no big deal Uh yeah and i wonder like i wonder what the like expectations are like what happens if this guy talks to steven pinker and steven pinker's just like a lame conversationalist. Well, then here's the thing is you can just resell your NFT. That's what's mm. brilliant about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, this is a market that we have to get in on. Um, what are they called? Polemics? If Polemics wants to get in touch with us, you know, um, our our lines are open and we are willing to significantly undercut Stephen Pinker. <laughs> That's the main thing <laughs> to keep in mind. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else on Stephen Picker and NFTs? Uh, nope. I think that covers it. Awesome. All right. So the main thing that we wanted to talk about um, is a paper that came out uh, a little while ago, like I think a few months ago, um, that is uh, investigating uh, reproducibility of psychology papers over the past two decades. Uh, title of the paper is a discipline-wide investigation of the replicability of psychology papers over the past two decades. And this is authored by Yu Yu Wu, Yang Yang, and Brian 
Uzi or Uzi, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, so yeah, uh, do you, Alexa, want to say what this paper is about or should I do it? Yeah, no. So the, so this paper is, um, it's attempting to sort of like extend what we can learn from actual replication attempts um, to the field more broadly to get sort of an estimate for the replicability of papers within the field of psychology. And obviously doing replications, I mean, that's something that's happened a lot more than in the past within the last 10 years, but it's quite time consuming. And so like, it's not very realistic for, um, for like us to replicate all of the papers in the field. Plus, obviously people are publishing new papers all the time. So this is an attempt to, I guess, use machine learning to come up with an estimate for the replicability of of the field broadly. And so the approach that the authors take is that they start with a training sample. And these are studies that actually have been replicated, right? Yep. And so they look at the characteristics, specifically the textual characteristics of the studies um, that have either replicated or failed to replicate um, in actual replication attempts. Um, so they use this like automated procedure for analyzing the text that's describing those studies. And then it looks for features of that text that predict whether or not the study replicates or not. And then it applies that sort of predictive model to a very massive sample of papers. I think all of the papers that have been published in, what is it, two decades in the journals, um, Journal of Abnormal Psychology, Journal of Experimental Psychology, uh, Child Development, JPSP, and Psychological Science. Um, so all in all, yeah. that's a sample of just over 14,000 papers. Um, and so it, first of all, comes up with uh, estimates of the replicability of different subfields within psychology. And then there are, is also a sort of a more fine-grained analysis of, analysis of different um, aspects of papers that um, predict or do not predict um, whether or not the findings replicate. So that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could talk about some aspects of how this model works first, um, because I, I think that's really fundamental to interpreting the conclusions that you get from it. So uh, the, the training set uh, is... Uh, as you said, uh, a set of studies, 388 studies from 12 replication projects in psychology. Uh, so those include uh, the RPP, the Reproducibility Project Psychology, which I believe was 100 studies, right? Right. Um, and then uh, some uh, other replication projects, uh, registered reports, uh, stuff on psych file drawer, Etc. That's how they get to 388. Um, so for those uh, studies, they have the text that describes the studies. Uh, they use uh, what's called a word embeddings model based on uh, word to vec uh, So what this does essentially is it learns what each word means by seeing what contexts words occur in. So if words occur in similar contexts, then they are presumed to mean similar things. Um, and so what this model can do is it can realize that words that are, uh, you know, written differently 
mean the same thing. Like so, car and auto, for example, because they apply, they appear in the same places, uh, have the same meaning, and it gives you a quantification of how much two words do or don't mean the same thing by locating them in this uh, dimensional space that the model creates to represent all words that it's seen. Uh, and so what they do is they train this model on a large database of scientific research. Um, and that's important. You need a lot of um, training data uh, to create one of these word embeddings models. And then they use that model to mathematically represent every paper that they care about. Uh, so what they do basically is they strip out any statistics, formulas, et cetera. So they're only looking at the words. Um, they feed all the words in the paper into this model, and it gives them a composite representation of all the words that are in the model that's uh, represented as a 200-dimensional vector. Uh, so basically like a long list of numbers. Um, and each paper essentially is represented by one of these vectors that you can think of kind of as the average of the meaning of all the words in the paper. So it's kind of smushing them all together. Okay. And then they train uh, a, an ML classifier on the studies for which they have successful and unsuccessful replications, so those 388 studies. Uh -huh. And so what that's supposed to learn to do is to say, okay, what word features are associated with being replicable or not right. according to these replications? So one thing that's kind of a bummer about these models is it, it's hard to say, okay, what are the actual terms that it's responding to? It's kind of right. a black box in that sense because right. you're smushing everything in the paper together into this one composite representation, something you'd naturally want to know that you can't really. And the other issue is that it's really dependent on how good are the training data. So we're taking those results from the replications as the ground truth here against which the model's being trained. But it might be, for example, that the effect is actually real, but the replication is a false negative, um, or uh, that because of like implement implementation fidelity, uh, the replicators didn't get the effect that the original paper did, even though the original effect is real. Um, so we're sort of at the mercy of these replications being good replications. Um, and if that's not true, then the whole premise of the model doesn't work, right? We're, we're assuming that these replications are good enough in order to be the the basis on which we train a model to say, well, is this other paper that you haven't seen yet going to replicate or not? And right. I guess my first question is, like, as somebody who knows this meta-science literature really well, does that seem like a reasonable assumption? Yeah. So it would be interesting to, to like comb through the training set. But my first reaction to that is that it's going to depend a lot on the replication that was used as the um, or the replications that were included in the training set, because there are things like RPP that were a hundred studies that were each replicated once, right? And so with one replication, 
Um, sometimes the replications don't have a ton more participants than the original study in RPP, right? Um, then to take that like yes or no answer as the like ground truth for whether or not that finding is replicable or not is pretty iffy, right? But then there are other replication projects where like these are many labs projects um, where multiple labs and large samples are involved. And then the trustworthiness of the replication result is improved. There are still other possible issues, right? Like, um, yeah, the possibility of hidden moderators and things like that. Um, but at least that those cases are going to be more reliable. Right. And so with 388 total studies in the training set, more than a quarter of those would be the RPP. Right. Which is sort of like, I would think for this purpose, I mean, kind of lower quality training data just because the samples are smaller. And then some unknown, I, I couldn't find it in a quick read through the supplemental materials. Some unknown percentage are from psych file drawer. So kind of unpublished replications, which are, I would think of like varying quality. I mean, some might be quite good, but they haven't been peer reviewed. So we're not really sure. Whereas others I would think of as very high quality, right? So like a registered replication report that gets together many labs and has a sample size in the thousands, I would consider that to be extremely trustworthy um, right. compared to these other ones. So so yeah, I mean, that's like the first concern that I had as well is like, well, you're, what you're, the foundation you're building on is maybe not that solid. Yeah, right. And they they do a few different things to try to establish, um, I guess, the, the reliability of their method, right, for predicting um, replicability. Uh, so they, um, one thing that they do is they compare, um, within the training data set, they compare, let's say, a, a model that's based on social psychology, and they use that to predict um, replicability and clinical. I might not be getting these exactly right, but sort of like across sub areas um, and see whether the the model sort of like generalizes beyond the training data that it, the sort of subset of the training data that it was used on. Um, and then they also compare uh, this approach to other approaches of predicting replicability like um, prediction markets, which uh, are supposedly also people are um, generally fairly good at reading studies, at least collections of people are generally fairly good at reading studies and, and being able to predict which ones will replicate and which ones will not. Um, and so the authors of this paper claim that their, their approach of estimating replicability is sort of comparable in success to prediction markets. Yeah. So I think that they cite an earlier paper for that claim, um, uh, unless I misread it. I mean, to be honest, that seems, if that's correct, that's kind of astounding. Because it, it, if you think about what is a prediction market doing, it's aggregating the judgment of many humans who are domain experts, who are carefully reading the papers, who are not just reading the words in the papers, but who are also paying attention to the stats, who are bringing in other knowledge about the replicability of a phenomenon or uh, an area, and they're using all of that to make their judgment. Um, 
And if one ML model looking only at the text is as good as those aggregated experts, that's kind of mind-blowing, right? That almost seems magical. It is. Well, especially because of the point you make about the numbers, right? So the authors emphasize this, that they are taking out the numbers from the papers when they're analyzing the text, which at first I did sort of a double take because I was like, why would you do that? That would be like one of the first things I would look at. If you if you told me you can look at any piece of information to determine whether this paper will replicate or not, I would go immediately to things like the p-value and the sample size, right? And those are exactly the things that are excluded from this model, right? So yeah, and I was sort of curious about why that was the case. The authors um, said that basically that it was like an ease issue. So like it's easy to put these texts through this type of analysis, but it's not easy to get this, these machines to like pick out the right numbers. Is that right, you all? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one reason is that parsing p-values is surprisingly hard mm-hmm. um, because you need the p-values from the focal tests, not p-values from tests that are mm-hmm. predicted to be non-significant or um, manipulation checks. Like, automated scraping is is just tough. I mean, you could say, like, look, you guys put a lot of work into this like language model. If you had put the equivalent amount of work into an ML model that learns how to find the correct p-values, like maybe you could actually do a lot better. Um, so yeah, I would think that the stats are so obviously relevant that it didn't yeah. seem odd to say, well, we're going to ignore the most relevant piece of information. Right. But okay, if we put that aside, and I think this is a big, you know, that's a that's a big thing to put aside. But if you do, I suppose that what people are doing when they're and even experts are doing when they're deciding whether or not a study will replicate is they're like probably picking out keywords, right? Um, and I guess what the machine learning is doing is identifying those same keywords. So I was trying to like make this idea a little bit more concrete for me because machine learning stuff is not very intuitive to me and I have no experience with using it. Um, but I was trying to imagine, okay, so you were saying, well, like the unsatisfying thing about this process is that you're not going to be able to necessarily like see the words that are working as predictors, right? Um, but if we could sort of like speculate, um, I'm imagining, okay, you're reading through a paper, maybe if you see particular subjects, like particular areas of research. So let's say you're talking about, I don't know, aggression research, or you're talking about social priming or something like that, right? Maybe those things sort of start to tip you off to whether or not a finding will be replicable. And then you could also think about mentioning certain methodological approaches. Like, are you using vignettes? Are you using the IAT? Things like that. Um, And then I also think that one other type of language that could affect the results is... um, like things like sensationalized language, maybe. So like, you know, this like counterintuitive finding or, you know, this novel finding, maybe those are things that are, um, they could be correlated with both newsworthiness, which I guess we'll also touch on later, um, but also lower replicability of, of the findings. So when I thought about it in that way, I was like, okay, this does seem plausible that this would work this way. Right. So one thing that's a kind of a wrinkle here is that when they train the model, 
they are typically looking at single study replications, right? So the RPP picked, I think, the first study in the paper, typically. Uh, so they say, for the training sample, our unit of analysis is the unit of manual replication, which is usually a study or a set of studies in a paper that was replicated and has a single outcome. Hence, we only utilize text pertaining to the target study or studies to predict replication outcomes, rather than the full paper. For the prediction mm -hmm. sample, the unit of analysis is the main text of the full paper. So the way I read this is that, like, let's say study one was replicated. For training, they would take study one intro methods, results, conclusions, not the intro of the paper as a whole, right. not the general discussion. So I, I think that your point about, well, maybe there's specific words, right? If it says priming your IAT in there, it'll definitely find that. Um, that definitely seems right. It's a little less clear to me how like generally inflated language uh -huh. would be present. Like, I mean, maybe it is even within the study discussions, but uh -huh. I would more expect to see that kind of in, in the introduction right. and the abstract and the general discussion and so on. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. So it probably is more like, yeah, features of, or characteristics of studies that are more yeah. or less likely to replicate. Right, right. And it could be picking up on stuff like, you know, repeated measures, for example, yeah. um, definitely, definitely on stuff like priming. Um, right. So, so you could think of it as like, okay, well, if we all have the intuition that this like embodiment study, well, I was about to say N of 20, but there I'm bringing in stuff that yeah. it wouldn't know about, right? Yeah. Um, that would go into the human judgment. Um, that's something where we probably would start out with a more skeptical prior, whereas it's a cognitive study with you know 200 trials, repeated measures. We'd start out with a less uh, skeptical, um, skeptical prior. I guess like there's there's other things like so if if people talk about um, moderation, uh, they, that would definitely get picked up. If they talk about interactions, interactions that would get yeah. picked up, right? So. Some things that might like start pinging our radar, the model would be able to spot. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you look at the accuracy, this is just in the training data in a kind of a cross validation where basically um, you use a third of the data to train and then two thirds of the data to test and you um, select those randomly and you do it multiple times to get sort of an average. Um, it The model gives you a probability which basically is a predicted probability of replication, although they seem to stay away from saying that for a reason that I don't quite get. Uh, but if you, as a classification, say if the model says greater than a 0.5 replication score, we're going to say it predicted it's going to replicate, lower than we're going to uh, say that the model predicted it didn't replicate, uh, then it's right 68% of the time. That's better than 50-50, Although, because in this sample, 57% uh, of papers didn't replicate, if you guess don't replicate the entire time, you're going to be right 57% of the time, right? So really, that should be your baseline. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about 10 percentage points better than the baseline. If you pick uh, the top 10% replication score papers and say, we're very confident those are going to replicate— and the bottom 10% replication score papers, this is again from the kind of model values, um, then it's accurate for about 82% of the papers. So that's that's better. It's still not, you know, 
it's not infallible by any means. It's going to make a lot of mistakes, even in these data that it was trained on, <laughs> let alone in maybe different data that we're now going to throw at it when we show it the um, 14,000 plus papers that it's supposed to make predictions about. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the maybe the more cautious way of understanding this paper is possibly as a first step, right? So if the key to improving predictions that are made by this paper is having better training data, then it could get much better, right? As we run more replications, as there are more large-scale replications, as those are included in the training set. Um, so this as sort of like an approach could be quite promising. Or, I mean, I guess the point that you made about maybe our time would be better invested in figuring out ways to scrape p-values and sample sizes. And, you know, maybe that's going to be a better way of of determining um, replicability. I mean, at least I would want to see both. And I, I mean, I feel like given the stuff that machine learning models are able to do, this doesn't seem like that hard a task, actually. Uh, so I think if smart enough people work on it, we ought to be able to have a model that with a high level of confidence says, here's the test statistic and p-value for the key test. That doesn't seem like an unsolvable problem to me. Yeah, right, right. Right. So, I, But I think this is like actually uh, an underappreciated argument for the value of replications, which is that like it's not just that we know about those specific findings, it then allows us to do better meta-science, right? Yeah, it allows us to learn characteristics of more or less replicable papers over time. I wonder what sits on the other side Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. That will go at least to me and Mickey. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there also if you'd like. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show, and we really enjoy reading the reviews. Okay, so uh, should we talk about some of the results? Yeah, so I guess with all of those caveats in mind, I mean, they're, the results of the paper, um, yeah, they sort of ring true to me, so I wasn't terribly surprised by most of their results and they sort of corroborated, I think what most of my expectations would be with maybe some exceptions. Um, so one of the things that they do is they just talk about the replication score, right? 
And so they say the score can be interpreted as the relative likelihood of replication success. In other words, a paper with a replication score of 0.8 is more likely to replicate than papers with lower replication scores and is twice as likely to replicate as a paper with a replication score of 0.4. Um, so then they talk about the um, replication scores of different subfields of psychology. Um, and so, yeah, the personality psychologists will be happy about this. They have the highest replication score, um, but maybe not in absolute terms, a particularly impressive score. So the score was 0.55. Um, so what that means is that uh, any given personality paper has a 0.55 chance of replicating according to this estimate. Yeah, well, I mean, they stay away from saying that in the paper, directly interpreting it as a probability. And so I don't understand because like the, as far as I understand the kind of classifier that they used, you can directly interpret it as a probability. So I don't know why they really don't want to say it. Is they got some reviewer pushback? Is it I'm misunderstanding? So I think uh, I that's what it means, but we should put an asterisk on it just to say they really don't say that in a paper. Maybe they have a good reason for not saying it. Right. 0.55 is the quote, relative likelihood of replication success, which may be different than the probability that a replication is exactly successful. right. Exactly okay. right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then going down the list of subfields, we have um, organizational psychology at a mean of 0.5 or a, a replication score of 0.5, cognitive psychology at 0.42, social psychology at 0.37. Um, and then developmental psychology is 0.36 and clinical psychology is 0.44. Sorry. So clinical was out of order there. Um, so it's relatively high compared to the others. Yeah. So does this match up with kind of your intuitions before reading this? Uh, let's see. So personality psychology, I would have, I would have predicted that personality and cognitive psychology would be higher than social psychology. And I would not have had a prediction for organizational organizational or clinical. And then I think I would have put developmental around social. So, so approximately what they found. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, for me too. For me too. I actually, I would have imagined cognitive psychology might do a bit better. Um, so I don't know if I would have expected that personal personality is sort of the clear outlier. And then I, I do think I would have expected social and developmental sort of at the bottom, unfortunately. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, the, that cognitive and organizational psych would be better than, than social and developmental seems very reasonable clinical. I don't, I don't know a ton about clinical research. So I, I really just don't have a strong intuition there. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Org psych is, um, sort of, that's sort of an interesting one because, uh, a lot of what they do, um, is non-experimental stuff within organizations, um, and uh, you can see from a figure, what is it, two in the paper, um, that their particularly their non-experimental stuff looks pretty good in terms of uh, predicted replicability. But even their experimental stuff looks pretty good and better um, than social, certainly. Uh, so mm -hmm. I I don't know if it's that 
their their work tends to be like not flashy at all, like kind of super boring stuff. And many of the theories are really obvious, um, or that they're more running these big field studies where it's kind of high end, um, it just by design normally. Uh, I'm not sure. Like maybe it's both of those. Uh, but yeah, they're they're really looking pretty good, and I feel like as a discipline, they tend to like not get as much respect, and I feel like they should be feeling good about this result. Um, another like c- potential consequence of having an imperfect training set, and inevitably the training set will be imperfect, is if it's not super um, representative of the subfields that you want to look at. I guess you could see. I, I think it would be possible for like one field to sort of piggyback on another. So let's say, for instance, that the training set didn't have any organizational psych in it, um, but organizational psych tends to use similar texts to um, cognitive psych. But then again, I mean, maybe the replicability rates are also similar to cognitive psych because they're doing similar types of studies, right? So if the text is similar, maybe the studies are similar too. Yeah, I think you raise a good point, though, which is, again, this gets back to the training data. Um, These are not randomly sampled studies from these different disciplines. These are studies that people chose to replicate. And then to say, we're going to generalize from this non-random training set to potentially very different examples and make a prediction there is potentially problematic, right? If you're like not representing uh, the the full extent of the data and the prediction set, that seems like you could, like you said, really, you're, it, it could really throw off the accuracy of your prediction. Uh-huh, right. Which I do think that they tried to address. I think they tried to do that with this, like comparing using a subset of the training set in one subfield to predict another and things like that. But that's right. But and, yeah, and I they, mean, ultimately there's going to be holes. So they they show that like within what they have in the training set that you know you can use social to predict cognitive I think or maybe it was vice versa um, and that looks about as good uh, so that suggests that there's like cross field generalizability um, but that I mean ideally it's something that you would be able to establish for each of these subfields that they're looking at and unfortunately there's just not enough like exemplars of replications in order to do that for everything. Right, right. Yeah, so we have this kind of rank ordering of the fields. Um, and then we have the experiment yeah. effect, which is that experiments are generally less replicable than non-experimental studies are. Um, and the way that they classified uh work as experimental or not is like actually very simple. It's does the word experiment appear in there versus not. Um, and yeah, actually, if you look at the predicted replicability for experiments across personality, clinical, social, developmental, uh, those all look about the same and pretty bad. Um, so like 0.3 to uh, 0.4 range. And the uh, predicted replicability for experiments in organizational and cognitive looks a bit better. Uh, but even there, the non-experimental work has a higher predicted replicability. Mm-hmm. So like even in, in cognitive, which I find that kind of surprising, um, 
because I think of cognitive experiments as typically being repeated measures, high-powered designs, even though even there it's predicting high replicability for the for the non-experimental work. Although that's a very that's a almost all cognitive experiments are uh, sorry, almost all cognitive studies are uh, experimental, and so there's like it's like three percent of the sample are non-experimental. So it's not quite clear how how seriously to take that comparison, I guess. Um, but I think the clear takeaway is for most areas, experiments are the model things that experiments are less likely to replicate than not experiments. Right, which sort of makes sense, right? So I guess I can think of a few reasons why uh, experiments are less likely to replicate than non-experiments. Um, yeah, one is that with an experiment, you're trying to isolate a causal effect. Um, and with a non-experiment, you can see a result because there is a causal effect or because of a number of other possible explanations, right? So let's say you take the impact of, I don't know, income on well-being or happiness or something like that, right? If you were to do that as an experiment, maybe you would try to like assign, you know, money to some people and no money to other people. And then you would measure, you know, well-being. Um, And if you were to do that as a non-experiment, you might sort of measure people's income and measure their well-being. And so you could see a relationship in a non-experimental study um, for lots of possible reasons, right? So maybe like happy people make more money or maybe there's some third variable that affects both happiness and how much money people make. So there's like a lot of possible things that could give rise to that. But with an experiment, you're really trying to isolate only the causal effect. So maybe that's a bit more ephemeral. Um, And then there's also the, the issue of when you're doing a correlational study, in particular, if you're doing a correlation between um, multiple self-report measures, um, then there's shared method variance, right? So if you just sort of like give people two questionnaires and they all use seven-point scales that go from highly disagree to highly agree, um, you'll get some sort of minimal degree of correlation between those two things just because people tend to answer scales in a particular way and they're both self-reports. So those things are going to inflate the the chances of getting findings, um, which is not, I guess, present for experiments. Right. So I guess if you wanted to look at this super cynically, you could say in non-experimental work, how many ways are, what are the main ways that you would spuriously get a significant publishable result? Um, so it might be method variance, it might be crud factor, the idea that you know, lots of things correlate with lots of other things for uninteresting reasons. Um, it might be moderators, uh, sorry, uh, confounds that you haven't thought of. Um, and all of those uh, might give a replicable result that nonetheless uh, isn't what you think it is. Right. Whereas experiments, the main way uh, to get a spurious positive result is to p-hack, and that's not going to replicate. Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Here's another um, possibility that I thought of, kind of as you were describing this hypothetical money experiment. So often it's the case, 
at least in social psych, that there's some phenomenon there in the world that ultimately is the kind of motivating reason behind doing the experiment. But the experiment is meant to be kind of a simulacrum of that thing. So we really care about wealth and happiness, and we're going to simulate that by making some people wealthier in a lab game or something. Yeah. Right? So it's a representation of the thing rather than the thing itself. And so then it makes sense that that would be more fragile. Maybe that's what you meant when you said it's just more ephemeral. Like we're trying to create this like model of the actual thing that we care about. And that would also explain why the organizational psych experiments tend to be more applicable, because my understanding is that often their experiments are the thing itself. It's like mm-hmm. we randomly assign some employees to get weekly feedback and others not. Uh-huh. And we care about the effect of that on morale. Uh-huh. And it's like you're not putting them in a situation where some people are role-playing employees and other people are role-playing managers and they're giving fake feedback. It's like, no, they're literally showing up at their jobs and either getting feedback or not. Right. Which also speaks to like the importance of the connection between what is actually done and the types of conclusions you want to draw in a study, right? So in organizational study, the way you're describing it, it's like what you're doing and what you want to draw conclusions about are really closely tied, right? You're like giving people feedback and you want to know what the impact of giving people feedback is. But often in social psychology, we are, I don't know, like putting people on a higher, a more elevated stool in order to know what it means to be powerful, something like that to, you know, just to pick a cheesy example, but there's lots of cheesy examples in social psych. And I think like, you know, maybe I'm going down a rabbit hole a little bit here, but part of, part of the lower replicability of social psych compared to personality and cognitive psych also has to be this sort of like, uh, maybe like a cultural difference, right. In terms of what people see as, um, the like, coolest, most groundbreaking, most innovative science. And I think this has changed a bit in the last few years as we have become more concerned about replicability and things like that. But I think, you know, I know personality psychologists who sort of like pride themselves on personality psychology being a less flashy field, maybe even a more boring field than social psychology, right? And so, you know, if, yeah, if you're looking for stuff that's a little bit more predictable and you're really interested in like effect sizes and you know, your results are going to be significant and, um, you're probably going to get more replicable stuff than if you're like reaching for this really crazy counterintuitive, you know, finding. Okay. So we have the experiments are less. Uh, predicted to be less replicable overall. Um, what else have we got in terms of empirical takeaways? Yeah, so um, another thing they looked at was um, they basically tried to get at um, expertise. Um, so they looked at the first author and the most senior author who's I think defined as 
the person with the most publications who's on the paper. Yep. Um, and then the way that they quantified the expertise of those two authors um, was to look at their cumulative number of publications. Um, and so they, they saw a significant positive association between the first author's number of publications and replication success. So, you know, one way to interpret this would be when first authors have a lot of expertise, um, they've published a lot of papers, they know what they're doing, um, their findings are more likely to replicate. Um, but this was not true for the most senior authors. So that casts a little bit of doubt on this expertise idea. Um, but I don't find that idea totally implausible, especially if you consider the sort of extreme outlier cases. So um, there's lots of people who have only ever published one paper. Um, and, you know, you can imagine if you're running a study for the first time or something like that, that maybe you're less likely to, to run something that, that really replicates. I don't know. I mean, now that I say it, I'm like, really, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that would be the case, but yeah. The, uh, I mean, it's sort of contrary to this idea that we had that people p-hack for career success, mm -hmm. um, which would suggest that if you pump out a bunch of unreplicable stuff, you're going to do better because you have more publications. Right. I think it's I I, I think the metric that they use um, for for competence is um, cumulative number of publications eventually, not at the time of publishing the paper. I, I think that I have that right. The idea being like, well, these are people who are more skilled and therefore like in the long term, they're going to be more successful. But all of this kind of runs against this idea of, well, we have these bad incentives that encourage people to do bad stuff and reward people for doing the bad stuff. That really doesn't seem to be borne out here. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess if you thought that that effect was really strong, um, yeah, you would expect to see a correlation in the opposite direction. So people who have more publications are the ones who have um, less replicable papers. Um, but yeah, we, we still don't see, there's no effect for the competence or the expertise of the most senior author. Um, so that's like a little bit ambiguous, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that they are doing more replicable work as a result of being more senior, which you would also kind of expect if you think like people are getting, I don't know, doing more and more rigorous or robust research as they become more senior. I don't know totally what to make of this, this finding. I, I think it's, it's a little hazy. It's a little hazy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it does, the more you think about it, the more it seems kind of unintuitive given the dialogue that we've had about, you know, how these bad incentives push people to do things that are bad for the field. Um, no link between institutional prestige of the first or the senior author and replicability. So uh, research from elite institutions is no more or less likely to replicate than research from non-elite institutions. I guess yep. that's good news. Well, I think I, so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't really know how to interpret that as good news or bad news. I mean, one way to interpret it is that you might expect that elite institutions can choose 
any scientist they want. And so they should choose the people who are doing the most replicable work. And this suggests that they're not necessarily doing that. Um, but uh, I think that the explanation is just more mundane than that, which is that um, the replicability of people's work is just like not, not highly correlated with, um, I guess, yeah, the, the prestige of their institution, how much they're paid for their jobs. It also suggests that it's not necessarily correlated with their financial resources, um, which is kind of interesting because you would think if you have more financial resources, you might be doing higher powered studies, which would lead them to be more replicable, but. Right. Right. So maybe that is something that you're not picking up in these data because that's at least in social kind of a recent concern. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly stuff that I saw out of Harvard when I was in grad school, uh, their superior resources did not mean that they were collecting larger samples. Um, so that might be something that you would see, you know, in, in, in the future. The last thing that they talk about, um, I think is a really interesting finding, which is that the papers or the findings that get the most media attention, um, are ones that actually have lower replication scores. Um, so this suggests potentially that the things that attract the media to wanting to talk about findings um, are sometimes things that are actually indicators of a lack of replicability, right? So I guess one way to interpret this might be that um, really sort of sensational or groundbreaking findings might be more likely to be picked up by the media and then also be less likely to replicate Um and this is a concern that I have about um, the media's reporting on uh, psychology studies, because I do think the ones that sort of like catch people's eyes tend to be the ones that uh, I have a lot of skepticism about. Yeah. Yeah. So this definitely feels intuitive to me as well. Um, these correlations aren't huge. Uh, no. So... Uh, negative 0.21 in the training sample, negative 0.13 in the prediction sample. So it's, you're not explaining a ton of the variance, but I also don't, I'm not really sure how to interpret the magnitude of these correlations given, given the noisiness of this uh, training process, the model is going to make errors, all of that's going to attenuate the correlation. So I think definitely though, it, it seems very intuitive to me that the stuff that get, gets talked about the most is not the stuff that's most replicable. I guess the one other thing uh, in here is no uh, association with uh, citations. So it's not that oh, right. less replicable papers get cited more, which I think is good, but also not that more replicable papers get cited more. So this is sort of actually consistent with this null institutional prestige finding, it seems like as a field, at least historically, we weren't really distinguishing between findings that are replicable, which also seems intuitively right to me. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so overall, like, having read this paper closely now, like, what do you think? Like, is this a useful exercise? Like, is this a good use of our time to come up with like a predictive model that says, you know, uh, what's the rep, the expected replicability across large swaths of the literature? Are we better off investing resources in trying to figure out, well, do specific findings replicate and maybe try and extrapolate 
from that rather than trying to model these kind of higher level characteristics of like the literature as a whole. Yeah, I I guess the biggest takeaway for me from this paper is when I talk to people about the replication crisis and, you know, like the need for um, methods that improve the replicability of our findings, what I often do is I like rely on replication studies that have been done, right? So I rely on like these replication projects like RPP and there are others. Um, And I sort of average those things together and I'm like, okay, the the rate at which studies replicate from these that we know from these attempts to replicate studies is like, it ranges from, you know, very low, like 10% or something like that to like somewhere, somewhere around 60 or 70%. And then like the average is, you know, maybe around 40%. Right. Um, and what this gives me a little bit more confidence in is that that might not be sort of like specific to the studies that have been replicated, but it might extend a bit more broadly across the field. Um, And that might, you know, that doesn't have to be the case, right? Like, so it could have been the case that the studies that have been the targets of replication work so far stand out in some way, right? They're not, they're not representative of the field. So this, this like work gives me a little bit more confidence that those replication or replicability estimates are sort of yeah dependable and maybe extend more broadly within the field. Um, yeah, in general, is this like the way that we want to estimate the replicability of the literature going forward? Yeah, I don't know. I really want to get the sample sizes and p values in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that does feel relevant to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel a little torn. Um, I I like these big data approaches generally. Uh, at the same time, like I don't, I don't know. I I maybe I'm a little less uh, optimistic than you are about applying these results to to estimate replicability more broadly uh it i mean what the model is doing i think if it's working well is it saying okay what are the attributes in the training sample that correlate with replicability and then it's saying okay in this prediction set which of these papers look similar to the things that replicated or not, right? At a very high level, conceptually, that's what it's doing. So is the fact that we get these kind of similar estimates to what's come out in the kind of replicability project so far, is that independent confirmation? Or is it just kind of projecting what it's learned from what we know so far onto the rest of the literature and saying, well, if it kind of looks like the things that didn't replicate, I'm going to assume that they're not going to replicate it. If it kind of looks like the things that did replicate, I'm going to assume that it will. But it tells us a little bit more because it tells us at a textual analysis level how representative the papers that have been replicated are of the field as a whole, right? So they could have done this and still trained it on the same data But it might be the case that like the field as a whole has like a lot of papers that replicated really well, 
right? See. Right. And so, so they if could it's have like, come up yeah. with way higher estimates. Yeah, if it's like uh, for these replicability projects, we picked like super atypical stuff that just looks bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's that, that bad looking stuff is out there, but there's just not that much of it. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. That's right. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, what I would love to see is to go back in like five or 10 years once we've accumulated more evidence and see how does the model do prospectively? Like uh-huh. we're accumulating more replications. Is it, does it predict that right? Right? Like when mm-hmm. we get new data that such and such uh, study replicated or didn't, um, what is its accuracy at calling those? Because we're going to be getting more data, right? So you could imagine kind of continually evaluating uh, the accuracy of the model in predicting these new outcomes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sweet. Well, um, I think you're the one who suggested this paper. So thanks for suggesting it. That was an interesting read. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Sweet. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.